Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are our executive producers, Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Justice Magic, Binaural Production Engineer, Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, monthly co-host, Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse. It's us, and monthly co-host Cat Baldwin, author of The Forgiveness Workshop. If you are interested in becoming a contributor to this show, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there. And now, without further ado, our guest today is Lynn Sowey. She has written a book called Neo Burlesque, Strip Tease Transformation. Thanks for coming on, Lynn. Thanks so much for having me, Gary. I'm glad to be here. What is neo-burlesque? Neo-burlesque um, is simply a shorthand term to refer to contemporary burlesque. So burlesque that has emerged in the last couple of decades. Um, so the neo implies something new, but also what I talk about quite a bit in my book is that, you know, um, in the past, when we think of traditional strip clubs or strip tees, um, uh, neo burlesque is a little bit of a break from that in that, um, you know, it's usually about telling stories on stage. Um, it's about um, taking head on sort of what's happening in contemporary culture. And so for me, it's just, it marks a break. The Neo marks a break from um, burlesque past. Hmm. So what is the burlesque past? Like, where, where was it and how did it get to where it is now? Like, what has changed? Yeah, so burlesque emerged, um, many argue, in 1868 when Lydia Thompson and the British Blondes came from the UK with their unique brand of theater. So burlesque back then was not about uh, stripping. It was not about taking off. It was about putting on layers of meaning. And so one of the things that was sort of um, radical and quite frankly, punk rock before punk rock existed was that though all the women um, of the blondes, they played the men's parts. So this allowed them to appear on stage um, women dressed in men's clothing, which at the time was was pretty um, shocking. They exposed their ankles and their and their wrists, um, so it was very risque. And they poked fun at everything. They poked fun at high culture. They poked fun at popular culture, and they were all doing it in this way that they were just sort of you know uh, poking fun and and winking. So there's this one thing that exists throughout burlesque is this poking fun. And this um, awareness, this 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 um, ability to sort of wink in a way that the performer is in on the joke, and the performer knows that what they're doing on stage is, um, you know, some, sometimes blue, sometimes controversial, um, and sometimes very shocking. So that's the original. Those are the origins of burlesque in the United States, um, but most. What most people think of when they think of burlesque is what's known as the golden era of burlesque. 
And so that's the sort of 19, emerged in the 1940s to uh, roughly the 1960s, known as the golden era. And this is when we had striptease became a, um, you know, a popular thing that you would go and see. You would go to a burlesque show at a theater or you would go to a, a nightclub um, and see striptease artists as well as comedians and variety artists. Um, and, and again, that, that also was about emulating um, high class culture in a way that was often disconnected from where the performers were coming from. A lot of them came from, you know, rough uh, backgrounds, um, abusive relationships and working class backgrounds, working poor. Um, and so one thing that I, that the one thing that I think is really fun about burlesque is that whole poking fun um, is something that has existed um, in its many incantations since the 1868 emergence. I didn't know that. I totally relate to the whole punk rock analogy. You know, I as a young kid, I used to play in a punk band called the Scumbags. And, but it was very satirical. You know, it was all sort of, you know, poking at the ridiculousness of re- mainstream society and, and what people actually buy into. Um, and it sounds very similar to, to what you're talking about is how burlesque started. I, I never knew that. It's fascinating. Yeah, it is super interesting. And, you know, um, if you really look at the history of entertainment and theater in the United States, I would actually go so far as to argue that Saturday Night Live would not exist if it wasn't for burlesque. And I think that one thing that's happened is it got sullied, right? So when it became synonymous with stripping, um, uh, it became, it, it turned it into this thing that was sorted and undivorceable from commercial strip clubs. Um, and I'm, I really, I don't want to like, you know, um, uh, villainize commercial strip clubs because I think they do have a lot in common with burlesque. But really, it started as a theatrical art form. Um, and, and continued to be that um, throughout the mid 20th century. And so it's really interesting to today that we kind of like, you know, we kind of can't wrap our brains around the fact that uh, in the last quarter um, of the 19th century, when people went to go see a, a theater show, when they went to go see, went out for an evening of entertainment, um, a lot of times they were seeing burlesques because a burlesque is parody it's poking fun Hmm. so what is it that you think is causing this resurgence of neo burlesque now in in our time yeah so the time period that i talk about in my book and my book is a very focused um examination of the emergence of the neo scene in new york city kind of like in the late 90s, uh, turn of the uh, 21st century. And so it's not a, a big, um, you know, it's a, it, it's not a reference book. There's, it's not about all the scenes all over the world. And all of that work does need to, to be done. Um, but I was focusing on this particular moment, first of all, because I was there, um, participating uh, in the culture as a performer, as a scholar. Um, but... Uh, but I think one of the things that was happening at the time was um, in New York City, at least, there was a pushing back against the Giuliani era, against 
this era that was all about, you know, cleaning up New York City. Um, when I first moved to New York City, and I, and I don't mean to romanticize um, uh, things that don't need to be romanticized, but I remember, you know, 42nd Street uh, not having Disney stores, but, you know, there would be a prostitute at the deli when I was getting my coffee in between dance classes. And again, I'm not romanticizing that, but one thing that happened um, during this era was that all anything that was like remotely connected with sexuality, um, sex work. And it's important to remember that that's labor, that that's a type of um, work for for segments of the population. Everything was like literally pushed in into the edges of the city. Right. So that we could have that clean mega mall. So 42nd Street now uh, is is something comfortable. There, there, there's an Applebee's. There's, you know, there, it's comfortable for people from out of town to come and experience their little mega mall in New York City and think that they're having an authentic New York City experience. <laughs> and I think what a lot of us were doing, and it's important to recognize, like Lady Gaga came out of this scene too, the late, late 90s New York City nightclub scene. Um, and and we were really railing against this beigeification of this, you know, um, pushing things underground, pushing things to the margins. And people were just using nightlife stages to be like, you know, F you, we're going to we're going to um, we're going to express ourselves the way we're going to express ourselves. And you're not going to push us to the margins. So it was really, really about that. It was pushing against. Um, I don't know, decorums of respectability um, and the fact that things were really starting to literally be pushed pushed away so that they can make things clean and acceptable, family-friendly entertainment. So it was a response to that, I think. Interesting. When I was a kid, I grew up in New Jersey, and I would my parents would go to work during the day, like in the summer period, and I would be able to take the bus and go to New York City <laughs> And back then, you know, it was so much fun for me, especially like a 13-year-old kid, you know. There'd be like all these adult bookstores and, and strip clubs and hookers and pimps. And it was easy to buy drugs. So I had a great time there as a kid hanging out. Um, and, yeah, and then it became like Disney World. <laughs> it, was, it was like complete, a complete opposite. Yeah, and it's... Um you know, again, not to romanticize uh, some of the underbelly. However, uh, there was a liveness and a realness to it. And a lot of that got eradicated with zoning changes. And the prim the primary thing that got cracked down on was explicit, the explicit body. Um, and so, and so, yeah, we're bringing that back to the foreground. Yeah. I remember being able to go to New York and I don't even know what section it was, but there was a diner and the prostitutes would walk up and down the street topless. You know, <laughs> I don't think that's happening now. <laughs> no, that's definitely not happening now. And, 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 and the thing is, like, like, I do sort of glorify that underbelly type of life because I don't know. I, I miss it, actually, you know, the, the I mean, yeah, you know, it had its downfall. Like people got hurt, people got sick, people caught diseases, things like that. But also, there was a, a realness to it, and 
I also think it brought out sort of a level of compassion too, because everybody sort of partaked in it. Even the wealthy people kind of would partake in it, you know, and it was a way of people intermingling with each other that maybe normally wouldn't have intermingled. Yeah, for sure. And that is, I think, in a lot of ways, that's largely gone, um, especially the area that we're talking about, Times Square, mm-hmm. um, that it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't feel like that um, anymore. No, no. It's like all Disney characters and and uh, it's like an outlet mall now, really. <laughs> Absolutely. And I was there when all of that happened. I was there. Um, when the Disney store came in and that was sort of the beginning of the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not the same, same Times square that I used to drop acid in. That's for sure. No, you don't want to drop acid there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how does the, the burlesque scene affect um like, like, like with what's happening now, like, like, is, like is there's any resurg- resurgence of it. Um, do you think it's like a reminder of a time once forgotten? Or do you think that is more of a movement to make things sort of more real again? Well, I think it could be both of those things simultaneously. I mean, there's definitely a nostalgia a- edge to burlesque. Um, and that's one of the things I talk about quite a bit in my book is that it's both a performing art and a participatory culture. And that participatory part is very important for um, for the scene. So people that go to shows, they're also dressed up in vintage clothing or, you know, they're wearing their red lipstick and they're, and their high heels or they're, they're playing, um, they're, they're getting into dressing up and being part of, of the experience. And so I think that there's this real, uh, nostalgia for pinup rockabilly, all of that sort of like mid 20th century, mid modern, um, era. Um, and it doesn't mean that we're going back to a time when women had less choices in life, that they were expected to be housewives, right? That, that is not um, uh, what's being pr- proposed here. I think that that uh, the aesthetic uh, of that era, though, that nostalgia is is very, very, very strong. Mm-hmm. But it also allows, like you said, for people to connect. And another thing I talk about in my book is how the audience is an integral part of the show. So, you know, you go to a comedy show and the people in the audience are hooting and hollering. So there's that component. Um, but in burlesque, like there's no fourth wall. There's the uh, performers might might come pre-COVID, come out and walk around the audience and get in your face. The host is um, referring to people in the audience. There might be audience participation where people come on the stage. Um, and this is all an actual integral part of it because it's fun. So it allows us to, you know, connect with each other on a human level. It's not, you're not going to a traditional theater and sitting in the audience and uh, being quiet um, when the curtain rises and then not speaking or doing anything until, you know, the curtain falls. With the last, it's like you're drinking alcohol, you're chatting with your friends, you're hooting and hollering. And it's like, um, that is to me what makes it really exciting. So it's both the nostalgia that you're talking about, but it's also that human connection. Hmm. 
that interaction is something that used to actually happen also at comedy shows until people started putting out videos of a comedian making somebody fun of somebody in the audience and then him getting crucified for it. Did the burlesque dancers or neo-burlesque dancers fear that type of reaction? Fear a reaction from someone in the audience? Yeah, like them, like, you know, ending up on a, on a, on a, on a video being posted on the internet of them, you know, interacting with somebody in the audience and then being like demonized for it, you know, like a comedian making a joke. Well, I would say that I don't think that there's the same um, economy of reproduction in comedy shows that that's in burlesque. I just don't think that that is existing yet. You know, you don't, you don't go to um, Amazon or, you know, Netflix and see the burlesque show, you know, click on the, you know, it's just not the, it's just not the same. Um, And I personally think that um, burlesque is adult entertainment. And the word adult has, again, when we go back Mm -hmm. to those negative connotations. So it's actually X-rated. Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it X-rated. I would call it adult. And so Mm -hmm. let me explain the difference to you, because when we say the word adult, what goes into our mind, as you just said, is X-rated. But I actually think a lot of what happens on burlesque stages is you know, maybe not PG-13, but PG-17, right? It's not any more explicit than Miley Cyrus, you know, swinging around naked on a, on a wrecking ball. Um, but the, but by adult, I mean um, the references, uh, the, the, the comedy, the double entendres, the double meanings. Like, you kind of have to be an adult to get some of the references. Furthermore, the majority of burlesque shows happen in nightlife happen in venues that are over 21. And of course, that's not the case across the board. There are shows that still happen in theaters and things like that. Um, but more or less, it, it, it's adult, like it's adult themed. You have to be a grown up to get it. And, you know, a 10 year old may be in the audience, conceivably, depending on what kind of parent you are, <laughs> um, and laughing at the same slapstick comedy, but they might not get the reference to, you know, Pee Wee Herman um, and a sex scandal, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that to me, when I say adults, I'm trying to, um, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm being provocative in, in, in saying that um, uh, because people associate that word with X rated. But what I mean by it, I'm trying to recontextualize that as like, yeah, well, we can't we can't act like that. That's not the connotation people have. But I'm interested in adults as something for grownups, staged um, in spaces um, where you have to be of a certain age to participate. Hmm. I guess I used the X-rated idea because R-rated used to be adult, and now that's no longer really adult. You know what I mean? Like R-rated is almost closer to G-rated to me now. <laughs> You know, so there's really nothing left <laughs> that uh, Disney yeah. hasn't corrupted. <laughs> right. Definitely. But I think the majority of people in the world think the same way you do when they hear the word X rated. Like that's the connotation mm-hmm. of, of, of what they think about. And I think that this is, you know, um, going back to the taboos around burlesque. Um, and I talk about this in my book and it's pretty shocking to me, but. 
you know, uh, I think there's disconnect between what people think happens at a show and what happens at a show. And so there's been quite a few cases of people who've lost their jobs, um, professors who've gotten fired, um, uh, example of a woman who um, lost custody of her kids. Um, and so all of these are um, because I think people have this connotation that, you know, oh, burlesque is um, uh, sex work or and it, it, and it is sex work to, to some degrees. It's like you're using your body, you're using sexuality uh, to, um, you know, to, to gain a living. So in that in that way, in that way, it definitely is um, and I'm really not interested in saying oh burlesque is great and stripping is this or you know I don't want to divide the two I want to keep them you know connected because they're cousins for sure absolutely uh, but but it's just kind of crazy to me I'm like what what do you guys think is happening in a show like this is this is like it's like it, it, it's like a variety show and it's fun and everyone's drinking and having a good time and some people think that it's like, you know, um, it's corrupting the world. I did a show in a small town in upstate New York and a very concerned local citizen wrote a letter to the chief of police and the mayor um, and everyone on the Chamber of Commerce that this show was going to bring prostitution and drugs and murderers to town and i was like god i wish we could like i wish it was going to be that live right that would be fun show. <laughs> so yeah, i don't know what i don't know what they're thinking but i invite them all to come to a show and see what's happening <laughs> um yeah you know um like i've never actually been to a burlesque show. i've been in obviously you know strip clubs and and all of that but i've never you know, I've never gone to New York to see an actual show. Um, it's interesting. What, what I was thinking was, why, you know, it, it seems like the um, human sexuality and the human form in general are more, we have more restrictions on, on expressing that now than we did 30 years ago like how did it's almost like we went completely freaking backwards you know where we should be able to you know accept human sexuality accept our bodies and accept each other for what we are you know but it seems like it's going backwards does burlesque um address those type of issues oh absolutely i mean that's what it's that's what it's all about um is expressing the body and there not being shame in Putting the putting your explicit body on stage for the for the world to see, um, and you know I, I actually think it it goes back more than thirty years. I think that something happened actually after the late nineteen sixties, the late the sexual revolution. Um, I think there was a pendulum swing back to to repression. Um, so that if you go back to like the golden, um, if you go back to like the nineteen thirties. Uh, and you look at nightlife entertainment or you look at world's fairs, um, world's fairs were, you know, b before we had dining, um, you know, malls and, and Disneyland and all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. we had world's fairs. And this is where people would go to celebrate the prowess of the nation state and look at what, you know, uh, uh, look, look what the world had to offer in terms of technology and art. 
um, and culture and the midways of the century of progress world fairs in the 1930s were filled with burlesque performers. So the, you know, the New York World's Fair, um, the Golden Gate International Exposition, the Chicago World's Fair famously had Sally Rand, who later introduced her nude ranch, not a dude ranch, <laughs> a nude ranch. Um, and so this was in the 1930s in the entertainment zone. So you're walking around with your kid and you know nobody's batting an eye. I'm sure some people did, but um you know, and you would walk around. It was sort of uh, like a um, uh, related to an earlier trope in uh, World's Fairs, which were the uh, ethnological villages, um, which went out of fashion um, for many reasons, but mostly because they were racist and um, imperialist. But um, but this was a sort of the same thing that you could kind of walk around this um, fantasy land with women with holsters on and cowboy boots and maybe a bandana around their chest and they were topless and, you know, scantily clad. Um, but there's nothing quote unquote explicit about it. You would just walk around and watch them in their quote unquote natural habitat. And so it was such a weird phenomenon to me when I started studying and I've done a bunch of archival research about this. I started studying the world's fairs and I was like, they, uh, all, all the great names of burlesque performers at the time that you can that you can think of, Rose Lee, Ali Rand, Faith Bacon, all of these guys were performing at the world's fairs in the entertainment zone. And so when we talk, when I look at that and I look at today, you know, it, you're right. Like we have absolutely gone back in time and become way more repressive than we ever were. It's sad. I, I think because not only, like when we separate ourselves from our sexuality, we separate ourselves from our spirituality too. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, why do you think that happened? Like, like do you think it was uh, the religion, religious movement, or do you, like one of the other things that I've come across too, um, you know, and I'm not sure how it fits into it, is I've talked to women that are in feminist movements that, you know, support things like burlesque and striptease as an empowering thing. And then I've had talked to others who are completely against it. Um, you know, is there a right or wrong view on that? And why do these such extreme views exist? Um, yeah, well, uh, I can't answer that because I can't speak for other people um, and why they have the particular views mm -hmm. that they have. Um, but I, I think it was, you know, uh, the second wave feminist movement was was uh, a moment in time in which they were railing against objectification of women. So if you look at the New York radical women's protest of Miss America in 1968, um, and, you know, you look at this group of women doing all of these, you know, uh, throw it, throwing their bras into the freedom trash can so that they can burn them, which never happened. So that whole myth of the bra burning is actually a myth. 
Um, and so I understand at that time, women looking at uh, pornography movement and looking at that and seeing that in relationship to all of the other, um, you know, patriarchal uh, institutions that were oppressing women and them saying, like, look, we got to get ourselves outside of this. We, we, we demand equality. Um, and so all of those things kind of became collapsed. Right. Um, and I think that that's part of it. So I'm not here to tell uh, a feminist if she thinks left is aggressive and ultimately oppressive to women. Um, I'm not going to tell her she's wrong. That's 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 what she feels. And she probably shouldn't go to a show and she probably, you know, she might have a good time. But uh, but I'm not here to, like, necessarily say that that position is is wrong um because i don't know what that person's personal experiences Mm -hmm. are um but i do think that in general with the uh with with second wave feminism coming at the same time as the sexual liberation movement um that there really was you know that there was a there was a revolution with 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 the body and your relationship to your body. And so you could see more um, at, at, at Woodstock than you could at that moment, at that moment in time, than you could see at a burlesque show, like one of those, you know, so, so I think that um, I think, I don't think that that quote unquote uh, uh, ruined uh, burlesque, uh, but it did mean that there was more explicit, sexuality out there related to um, women's independence and, and the sexual liberation movement. Um, and so I think a lot of that, you know, people have different opinions about that is totally, totally valid. Uh, but I think this insistent, um, this incessant, uh, uh, you know, desire to say, is it good or is it bad really misses the mark because, you know, it can be both things simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think we can ever, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not delusional. I don't think that you can ever see, you know, a naked body on stage and, and argue that that, that that body hasn't been culturalized and that that, and that that person on that stage at that moment is not a sexual object because they are, right? I, I mean, they're, but they're putting yeah. themselves on display. So they're both an object and a subject. And that's one of the things that I'm kind of interested in getting beyond that. Like, is it good? Is it bad? You know, getting beyond that and to think about, well, what is happening on these stages? Um, and, and what does that mean for mm-hmm. culture more broadly? It, it puts both the, the person on a stage and the people who are attending the shows in sometimes a weird position. Like I know if I were to tell somebody like, like, like I actually just did a training at work, actually on um, I don't know some kind of sexual harassment thing, but one one of the scenarios was this guy goes to a strip club, and he mentions it to a coworker at work, and apparently that is some type of sexual harassment is telling somebody that you've been to a strip club. That's pretty weird. <laughs> I mean, I do appreciate the efforts being made to create safe work environments because I'm going to tell you right now, you know, for the last 
<laughs> you know, a couple of decades that hasn't existed. So mm-hmm. um, I'm not going to really comment on that because I don't know the specifics of the training that you received. But I know in general that um, it's important to kind of get back on the right track with that one. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so what other aspects are there in burlesque, you know, with the storytelling in the art form of it? Um, like I, I have interviewed one other burlesque dancer. Um, she was in Europe and, um, you know, she was telling me everything that goes into her show, the costumes, the storytelling, the, um, you know, the, the body movements, like it was like all this stuff that went into it that I never really considered. Absolutely. That's the thing that's really interesting to me. Um, one of the things that's interesting to me is that burlesque performers, they wear all hats, right? So they are choreographers. Um, they come up with their own stories. So there's sort of like dramatic playwrights, if you have it. Uh, they also, um, they come up with their own costumes, they choreograph, they promote themselves. So when you think of a traditional theater, um, you usually have individuals who that's their specialized job to do that thing. So you have the person who's the, um, you know, choreographer and you have the director and you have the playwright uh, and you have the stage hands helping make it happen. But in burlesque, the performer wears all of those hats simultaneously. And so that requires, you know, uh, for performers to be what I call like, you know, nouveau Renaissance women. Like they are, they, they are expected to do all of those things simultaneously. So it really appeals to people, appeals to women who have a ton of creativity, who, um, you know, like to sort of like be in control of their own image Um, And that's one of the things that's really uh, exciting is that what you see on stage is usually um, absolutely the product of that individual's id. Like that is, you know, Mm -hmm. that's the weird thing that they wake up in the middle of the night, the strange dreams that they have that they've now tried to put on stage or the story that they're telling uh, and that to me is really, it's really exciting. And that, you know, you kind of know when a, when a performer comes on stage in a burlesque show, you kind of know what's going to happen, right? You know that they're probably going to strip down to pasties and a G-string. Um, of course, there's variety of acts and things like that. And people subvert it. So some people do what's called a reverse strip tease and they come on stage and, uh, you know, they uh, don't have clothes on and they put them on. So there's, there's uh, of course, there's ways that that gets subverted. But that's pretty much what's going to happen. Um, so you know what's going to happen, and yet you have no idea how it's going to happen, and you have no idea the story they're going to tell, and you have no idea if they're going to do a move that you've never, ever, ever seen before that makes you gasp. Um, and it's like, and that's what's exciting about it. It's like it's short format, probably involves strip tease. And yet you're at the edge of your seat waiting to see what happens. Um, and so and and the performers, they put a lot of work into all of this and a lot of expenses into all of this. And the 
gluing of rhinestones onto their costumes. It's just like the spectacle is just elevated. So, uh, so yeah, that's what's exciting about it. It's just the individual performer putting themselves on stage in ways that are self-authored. Hmm. Is there a, such a thing as a male burlesque dancer? Absolutely. There's all kinds of burlesque dancers. Um, some people refer to that as boylesque. Um, and there's also something called nerdlesque. And nerdlesque is, you know, specific references to popular culture um, that, that that is an integral part of the act. So if you're doing, you know, a Star Wars act, uh, you're very specifically referencing particular moments in that. And that could obviously go on ad um, nauseum if you think about all the popular culture out there. And so uh, and so there's all these, some people call them splinters or, uh, um, uh, you know, subsets of burlesque. But I personally argue, I personally think it's all burlesque, right? If, it, if it's in this genre of, you know, uh, you getting up there, telling a little story on stage, short format, um, exaggerated theatrics, uh, using striptease or alluding to sexuality or doing things in a way that that's a blue humor. Um, that to me, it's it's all burlesque. And the other thing with the with the term boylesque is the word boy. It's a little infantilizing, um, and furthermore, it's sort of making um, divisions over o- over gender. And I think we're sort of getting to a point where. Um, where that division sort of doesn't take into account, you know, um, how people self-identify. And so, you know, maybe, maybe you want to be a burlesque performer and don't want to be called a boylesque performer, uh, but your genitals are putting you in a category that you don't identify with. And so that gets a little, that can get a little complicated too. Um, but the bigger thing is, it's just like, Oh, it's just all burlesque to me. Um, and I, uh, you know, I definitely, However, someone wants to self-identify, I support that 100%. Um, but I just use the word for last. <laughs> so is there a drag-esque? Uh, yeah, there is. Um, uh, again, <laughs> I think that's burlesque. Um, all burlesque is drag. You know, like, they, these are not, yeah, uh, these are, these are not, quote-unquote, the girl next door going to the grocery shop store and, and, up a carton of milk. I mean, you know, there's some really exaggerated theatricality in the makeup. Uh, big giant wigs. I can show you uh, my wigs uh, above my bookcase. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> costumes, like really exaggerated costumes. Using corsets further exaggerate an hourglass shape. So all of that is, you know, so that the goal is not um, quote unquote realism or to blend in. The goal is to elevate a, a version of of femininity and womanliness. Um, so, so to me, it's all drag. Mm-hmm. Are there any fetish or lifestyle um, things happening in burlesque that are associated with it? Are those two connected anyhow? Absolutely. I mean, you look at Dita Montese's first book, you know, I don't know if you're familiar um, with with that, but on one side, it's it's a two books in one. Mm -hmm. So, you know, on one side, it's the art of the tease. And then you flip the book over and start from the back. um, 
and it's called the art of the fetish. So Dita Von Teese was a fetish model. Um, uh, so those, those worlds are absolutely intertwined. I mean, it's all sort of connected with nightlife and sexuality. So there's, you know, there's ways, um, uh, in which that's an integral part for a lot of people. So, so yeah, those, those worlds are definitely, um, intersect. Hmm. So is it possible to see almost like a bondage oriented burlesque show? Yeah, those exist. Again, that's one of the things that's interesting about burlesque. And there's some there's some performers who do, you know, you could go, you could go to a, a fetish or an exotic show um, that has lots of that. Uh, you could also go to a show that has um, an one act like that. So it just, mm-hmm. you know, it depends on, you know, uh, what what you're looking for. But yeah, a lot of a lot of performers really play play with that on stage um uh do so like you know some of the bondage uh on stage there's a lot of like aerial acts also that are sort of like playing with that with those type kind of tropes Uh, so yeah that definitely exists too anything that you want you can find really so i could find a woman in latex with a bullwhip for sure any day of the week i mean (laughs) isn't that what everybody wants Again, I can't answer that one, but <laughs> uh, I think you it's can pretty speak true. For yourself, Gary. <laughs> um, so, how many burlesque? Like, how large is this burlesque scene in New York? Like, can I just hop on a train right now and go see a burlesque show? Uh, well, it's probably a little early in the day, but yes, any day of the. And of course, COVID has changed all of this, but. Um, you know, there's multiple shows uh, every single night of the week. So, so yeah, you could definitely find you can definitely find what you're looking for. And you know, beyond New York City, of course, there's scenes all over the world at this point. And so, that's one of the things that's pretty exciting about it is that it just keeps continue growing and growing and growing. Um, uh, so it's kind of exciting. Hmm. Is there like a burlesque district in New York? Like I know. You know, I mean, I don't think it's there anymore. When I was younger, there was like the meatpacking district, which was like the sex club district. Oh, yeah, that's definitely gone. Uh, so b- before that, 46th Street um, was called Strip, uh, Strip Street. Mm-hmm. That was like back in the mid 20th century. Um, so that's where a lot of the strip clubs were. Uh, excuse me. That's where a lot of the burlesque houses, because technically that predates commercial strip clubs, though there's, they're obviously connected um, but yeah, no, there's not one particular district. There's clubs kind of sprinkled all around. Um, but also you have to remember that a lot of times, you know, people put on shows and bars or, you know, they'll find a venue that will be amenable to doing a show and they just put on a show there. So there's not a ton of venues that are specifically just burlesque mm-hmm. venues. Um, but instead, it's sprinkled all around. So, how does a person find these? Is there like a website, like a burlesque website to to find well, them? Well, there, or is this like all underground? Well, it used to be super underground, where you kind of just had to, to know where to go. But of course, all of that has changed. Um, Ed Barnes is is a wonderful photographer who used to. I don't know if he keeps it up anymore, but he used to keep 
up a website, um, a calendar with all the burlesque shows happening, the regular shows, as well as um, one-offs. And a one-off is one is a show that's just, you know, happening one time or over a series of a weekend. So he did that. Um, And then Time Out used to have, uh, you know, used to in the early 2000s, they used to have a whole section that was called, I think it was called Burlesque and Variety. Um, But I think that, that, so they had a category in the nightlife Mm -hmm. uh, that was burlesque, but I think that they stopped doing that. Um, So maybe it's back to underground, but you know, there's certain places, you know, you can always go to. Coney Island USA does a burlesque at the beach series every summer. And that's a really fun place to go and see a show. And, you know, a lot of people tend to bring their edgier, more avant-garde stuff. So um, that's a highly recommended one for the summer month. I'll have to check that one out. this summer. Yeah, it's really, it's really fun. Hmm. So do you still perform? Well, you know, I haven't, I do, um, I have not been doing, uh, much during COVID of course. Uh, but I live in New Mexico now and I moved to a small town, um, about the size of the town where the person wrote the letter to the chief of police (laughs) and the mayor saying I was ruining, uh, I was ruining their town. Uh, and I kind of did the same thing here. I, I rolled up and I was like, hmm, I wonder if we could do a show here and proceeded to book the Civic Center, which is the formal, former high school, um, giant proscenium stage, three to 500 seats in a small town with 6,000 people and nobody knows who I am and I'm bringing strippers and drag queens to town. So needless to say... There was a lot of persuasion on my part to get everyone on board with this. And uh, it ended up being really successful event. A lot of people, a lot of people in the town came out and supported it. And um, my show got picked up by a really lovely hotel in Albuquerque, which is the largest city in New Mexico. Beautiful boutique hotel called the Hotel Andalus. And they created a whole show around, um, uh, around me that I got to produce and host. Um, so that was really wonderful. And we added a um, cabaret. So that show's called Dr. Lucky's Blue Review at the Hotel Andalus. And we added a cabaret show. Um, this was in the spring uh, of 2020. So unfortunately, that never, um, the cabaret show mm-hmm. never happened because COVID hit and we kind of had to shut everything down. So I'm excited um, to bring that back or to, to see it for the first time. <laughs> um, but yeah, so still, still producing, still uh, hosting, still performing. Um, and, you know, just keeping on, keeping on. Wow. You moved from um, New York to New Mexico. I did. Yep. I sure did. I've been, I was traveling around the United States in an RV writing my book. Um, Neo Burlesque Strategist Transformation, published by Rutgers University Press. Uh, and I decided I decided to write the book on the road because I just thought that would be more fun than writing it in my house in New York. So I hit the road and got an RV and learned how to drive it and started exploring. So it was really, really fun. Uh, 
really fun journey that brought me here. Wow. You need to bring your show to Fairhope, Alabama. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Find me a venue. We'll come. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I left that town, but they certainly need that type of entertainment for sure. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people need it, but yeah. Um, so what are some of your favorite routines or that you do? When you're performing, do you have any favorite costumes or routines or political satire that you do? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, I I definitely uh, have a couple favorite acts, um, and that's one of the things that I focus on in my book. So each chapter focuses on a particular performer uh, and does a very close reading of one of their acts. Um, and so one of my favorite is one of my favorite acts of all time is by a performer named Miss Tickle. Uh, I call it her, I refer to it as her blow up doll act in my book, but she basically comes out like as a Hollywood starlet in a, you know, a tight fitting, um, gown, you know, waving to the audience and she, the music changes and she transforms and rips off her face and her wig. Right. So you didn't, you realize it at the time you're like, why is her face so stiff? She's like, this, you know, Hollywood starlet. Um, and then she reveals that underneath the Hollywood starlet, she is a giant blow up doll. So she's literally mystical is an amazing costumer and fabricator. And she has made a, blow up doll that covers her entire face. So she literally uh, has, has become this, this blow up doll. And then she proceeds to peel out of that um, into what would be characterized as a, she characterizes as a stripper esque body and a stripper esque movements. Mm -hmm. um, and at the end of the piece, she writes on her stomach with a tube of lipstick for sale. Right. So if you go backwards with that message for sale through all of those images, um, all of that iconography that she's invoking, it's very much a commentary on how women's bodies are commodified. And so I think that that's a beautiful um, way to convey that in a way that's like visually striking. It's super entertaining. And it's that unexpected, like nobody expects because I I seen this act many many times and i love watching i love showing it in my classes um because i do teach burlesque at new york university uh and i love showing it in classes and i love watching audience members faces when she turns when she peels off that dress and that and that um uh and that mask and she's wearing another mask so it's like underneath all the layers are more layers and it's just super super my favorite burlesque acts. Wow. That's pretty intense. I'll send you a link to it later. It's really good. Cool. Any others? Is there any that, is there any that you like to perform yourself that are your favorites? I, probably my favorite act to perform. Um, I call it my unicorn act. Um, but I'm basically wearing a horse. So I took a giant stuffed animal and cut it in half, right? So, and I made it so that um, 
So, so it's like I'm riding a horse or I am the horse. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love that act. I come up with a cowboy hat, a little cowboy jacket with the fringe hanging down. And, you know, I'm riding that pony. Um, and uh, and then there's a break. Uh, music tells tells a story a lot of times in burlesque or it's that, that way that we transform. Um, and the music changes and becomes kind of this like carousel-ish music. Um, and a magic trick happens and I'm not going to, I'm not going to divulge my magic secrets to you, but a pole magically appears and I turn into a unicorn. I turn into a, um, a carousel horse, right. Going around. And, you know, that's obviously a metaphor for, uh, uh, women who get stuck in, you know, in the, in, in their positions and they can't break free and they're, they're pretty and they're there to be you know, uh, you know, ride, ride the carousel, the pretty carousel horse, but it, but it never is actually able to do what a horse is supposed to do, which is run free. And then the music changes, um, uh, again, and it's, uh, chariots of fire, you know, that scene from chariots of fire and they're slow motion on the Mm -hmm. ocean running on the beach. And I like break free of the pole and I'm finally liberated and I'm able to like, yeah, all of the oppression shed my pole and shed my corset. And I let my hair and put my back to the audience and let my hair down and it cascades down and I turn around and I'm Lady Godiva. Um, and I start running slow motion to the audience, Lady Godiva. Then at the very, very, very end, I reach down into you know where and pull out a giant unicorn horn that I then place on my head and now I am a unicorn. So I go from a cowgirl to a carousel horse to Lady Godiva to a unicorn. Um, so when we talk about striptease's transformation, that to me, that like telling that story and making those connections between those things, that's what's really, really, really fun. Um, that's, that's probably my favorite my favorite um, act of perform. What made you think of that? Just lots of drugs, <laughs> creativity. I don't know why I had this horse. But who knows? And I was just sitting, staring at the horse, and being like, well, "What? What could I? What could I do with that?" And so it really started with the prop, and then thinking about, "Well, what story do I have to tell around this prop?" Um, yeah and it just it just kind of happened a little bit organically amazing (laughs) genius actually (laughs) um so when you were writing your book like what sources i mean how many resources are there out there to research the history of burlesque is there like a lot of information out there about it well, I have managed to scrape, hopefully, all of it together. There's a very, very long um, works-cited bibliography in my book and lots of endnotes. Um, but, you know, there hasn't been, uh, until re- rather recently, when I started teaching burlesque at New York University, God, in 2005, there was not a lot written on burlesque. There's a great book, um, by Robert Allen called Horrible Prettiness. 
And that is probably still the most important book is published in 1991. Uh, but it's about the Thompsonian era of burlesque that I was talking about earlier. It doesn't really get into um, uh, the golden era. Um, and it was written before the neo movement. So obviously it doesn't include that. So one thing that I did for this book is I conducted original interviews with all of the performers that I talk about in the book. Um, even though, you know, like I said, I was, I was there, uh, participating in the culture. I was on stage, backstage, on tour, sometimes with a lot of the performers. So I did have uh, intimate knowledge. Um, uh, but I didn't plan to write this book. Like I was just living my life, doing my thing. I didn't think that I would ever write a book on burlesque. And so I wasn't taking field notes. Like I was at the nightclub, go closing out the bar at four o'clock in the morning and hop, getting back on the subway and going home. But I didn't, wasn't really thinking about it that way. So I did go back and, and um, supplement that experience that I had with the original interviews. And so I quote those extensively in the book because I kind of knew what I wanted um the subject of each chapter to be or the topic that I was focusing on. Uh, and, and the interviews allowed me to direct uh, the performers to sort of engage that directly. And so I, I do depend on those interviews I conducted ex extensively in the book. What surprised you the most when you were doing your research for the book? What surprised me um Gosh, uh, I don't know if anything surprised me where I was like, huh. Uh, but I guess one thing that I, I had to do when writing the book, um, because it is an academic press. So Rutgers University is an academic press. Um, but I, I also wanted to write it in a way that, you know, any sort of educated person would be able to read it. Um, so I, I, I had to um, simplify or uh, attempt to, you know, write in a way that anybody would be able to read the book. And so that, I guess that was the surprise to me is using my disciplinary training. So using my training, my academic training, but also um, exploring a little bit more writing in a way that's generous to the reader um, because sometimes academic books can be a little bit um, challenging to get through. We'll put it that way. <laughs> so uh, I really worked on the writing hmm. on this, in this book. Does that mean you wrote it for a fifth grader? Absolutely I mean, not. Because, because that's one of the things I've heard like when you're writing a book now, you have to write it so it's comprehensible to a fifth grader. Otherwise, nobody's going to read it. Well, I don't want fifth graders reading my book because I just, again, I just don't think it's appropriate matter for a fifth grader. But um, no, it's still, it's not, you know, it's still academic. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not quite that open to any age audience. Um, but yeah, maybe that that'll be a goal for another day. Yeah, I don't know. I, know I, I just know, like, far as word choice and stuff, that's what the the publishing agencies will tell people when you're writing a book. 
Yeah. And if I were to rewrite this book, I would probably simplify it um, even more. Hmm. But, but yeah, so that was, that was a journey for me for sure. Any plans for another one? Sequel? Yeah. I'm actually working on a book collection right now. It's called Sex on Stage. Um, and it's an edited collection. And so the sex implies, of course, sexuality and the explicit body, but it also is meant to invoke gender. Um, and so that collection, we're at the proposal stages. We already have all the, we have 20, um, we have 20 contributors. And what I love about it is, you know, going back to this, like thinking about the audience is like, I'm hoping that this book has a broader uh, we'll, we'll have a broader appeal than just an academic audience because you know, we have traditional, slightly traditional essays, um, but we also have a memoir. We have a little bit of flash fiction, nonfiction. We have some photo essays that are very like image driven. Uh, we have some experimental pieces. And so it's just a little, we have some interviews. So um, it just has a different format than essay after essay after essay. It's it's, it's a little bit uh, it's a it's a variety book, and we've structured it like a show. So there's three acts and two intermissions. Um, so I'm really excited to see where that uh, lands. Have you considered just skipping making that book and just making a film? No, that's funny you say that. Um, well, I don't want to skip making that book because that book's all already done. So when I say we're at the proposal <laughs> stage, I mean, we're sending out uh, proposals to publishers and we have the whole thing and it's ready to it's ready to go. But I have been thinking a lot about uh, about getting into films. Um, and I think that one of the great things about our current climate is that documentaries are becoming super popular and you know it doesn't have to be the the burns version the rick burns version and you know you can make them with your own devices and so there's a lot of freedom in that and there's a lot of interest and you know they they can get picked up um in netflix or by by some of these other um servers so so yeah i've been thinking about that uh uh, that will be a learning curve because I don't know anything about making films, but I've been thinking about directing something. Um, and there's a, the first topic I have, the first film I would want to make is, would be about Marinka, queen of the Amazon. So Marinka was a, a burlesque legend and we use the word burlesque legend uh, colloquially in the, in the field to refer to performers that were, you know, back in the day. So um, uh, roughly during the golden era of burlesque, sort of like the 40s to the 60s slash 70s. Um, and Marinka was a beautiful uh, queen of the Amazon, incredible performer, still at 80, could like knock your socks off. Like she was so uh, incredible and just like, sexy and uh just the kindest most beautiful human being in the world and towards the end of her life she wrote a um she wrote her memoirs and she wrote her story and she finally told the world that um she was born uh, a biological male uh in cuba uh and so and you know um had a transitional um period of her life, which included surgery 
at a time when that was not um, in the really in the popular uh, popular imagination. Like you really had to had to dig for that if that was you know something that you felt. And uh, and so I just had the pleasure of spending time with her and uh, had a, got to interview her towards the end of her life. Um, and I wish I got all of her stories on film, but unfortunately when she published her book, she got some false promises from Hollywood, <laughs> whoever Hollywood is. And, uh, that never came through and she died of cancer. And so, um, but I would love for more of the world to know about Marika. And so if I were to make a movie, it would be about her. That's pretty awesome. Cool. Um, so thank you for being on. And before we wrap it up, where's the best place for my listeners to find you and find your book? Yeah. Please visit me at linsally.com. That's L Y N N S A L L Y.com. Uh, and I think the best place to buy books is directly from the publisher. So Rutgers university press, uh, publish my book. Of course, you can find it anywhere that books are sold. There are 50 beautiful color images in the book. But if you um, prefer to listen rather than to read books, uh, you can also get the book anywhere that audiobooks are sold. And Rutgers also does free shipping. So um, please order it there or at your local independent bookstore. Um, and yeah, check out the audiobook too. Did you read it yourself? Like the, 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 so, so the audio book is not your voice? No, I was very honored to have Kate Valentine, who is also known as Miss Astrid. And Miss A- and Kate um, narrated the book. Kate Valentine, a.k.a. Miss Astrid, was a very important uh, producer and host in the early neo-scene. Uh, and she also just hosted Dita Von Teese's Valentine's Day show in uh, um, a couple weeks ago. So she's um, awesome, uh, incredible performer and has a great uh, voice. And is uh, so I was honored that she um, agreed to narrate my book. Cool. Well, I will put the links to your website and to your book in the notes of this episode so my listeners can can find you. And it was a pleasure talking with you today. Pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Just hang on for one moment. I just have to play the outro.